Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. My friends and welcome to Idle Chatter from Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer and the Farm Machinery Digest. Hopefully the sound of my voice has things going well for you today. And we are in the, the beginning of December. So today is December 3rd, I believe. So the first week of December, full week of December. I usually record my podcast on Monday or Tuesday and then my uh, web person, Susan Moore and Moore Gooding. She's my graphic artist and web guru. She usually does her magic to it and then she posts it either later on Tuesday or Wednesday depending upon her schedule. And then it goes on to the Fran Network, the Farm and Rural Ag Network on Friday. So that's where you could find it along with being on my website, the Fran Network, Apple iTunes and also the Ag Daily website so uh, it's in four locations and today we're going to have a uh, podcast and we're going to be talking about cleaning out a combine and the impetus for this was brought about by uh, my friend Daryl Hefty from Ag PhD as I said in last week's podcast I was on the show a week or two ago and uh, Daryl asked me to do a podcast on what you should look at with a combine that was harvesting in very muddy and wet conditions. A lot of our friends in the southern United States have had those kind of harvest conditions. And I know a lot of guys out west have had wet harvest conditions, but the white wet stuff, not the wet wet stuff. And that brings about some challenges. And what what it really does is brings about a perspective of how you have to look at things. So that's what we're going to discuss today. We're going to discuss um, what to look at or more of a thought process for you cleaning out your combine after a wet harvest versus a drier harvest. And then in our special delivery segment, which is brought to you by Firestone Ag, Firestone Farm Tires, that's the new name, Firestone Ag, they actually, I believe they launched that name change at Commodity Classic last year, but we have a letter from Joe from South Carolina, and he's talking about greases, grease that he uses on his farm. So that'll be towards the end of the the show today. And the other thing I do want to also reiterate that up on the uh, up on the podcast section that I do have a Christmas gift buyers guide. So that is uh, what to get the hot rod farmer in your life for Christmas. 
So if you could check that out, it would be great. And maybe give some ideas for what to get that special person or what you could uh, suggest to that person that wants to get you a gift for Christmas. So we have some really eclectic things there. And then also later this week will be a supplement to that on my website, farmmachinerydigest.com, uh, which will show actually images, pictures of those different products I talk about in the podcast, and also give you a, a web address to link to to find out more about them. So that is that. As a matter of a little more, bit more housekeeping here, is that I my, uh, my wife Charlotte is a kindergarten teacher. And uh, she teaches about 60 miles from our farm and in New Jersey. She teaches right outside Newark, New Jersey. So it's a complete different world than from Warren County, where we farm here in Cat Swamp Road. And, uh, you know, New Jersey is a lot like a Whitman sampler chocolate box. And I've said this before, is that it has a, a, a lot of different uh, cultures here and a lot of different uh, demographics and where we are is still predominantly rural and farm country but 60 miles from here by Newark is the complete polar opposite but anyway the reason why I'm telling you that is to ask your forgiveness because uh, Charlotte does bring home to me as a gift from her kindergarten class a lot of colds and flu bugs and different things that kindergartners have and uh, luckily for her it seems to bypass her and come right to me so I am a little bit under the weather today and I am coughing and sneezing and have just uh, I guess whatever the kids had so I'm going to be hitting the pause button quite a bit so I could cough and clear my throat so if you hear that and uh, Sue Moore is going to try to edit that out as best as she can but if you hear a little bit breaks in the continuity of my voice that that is what it is all about so I'm asking you in advance for your forgiveness for that alrighty what I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about my friend Bob Ida and he doesn't have a combine but it's going to play into this and what we're talking about today and Back in 1991, before I met Bob Ida, I had a great opportunity of going out to Speed Week on the Bonneville Salt Flats. And I've, I had been to the Bonneville Salt Flats prior to that, but never never when uh, the cars were racing. So just just be able to see this, just to be able to see the Salt Flats. And then in 1991, I went out there and I had a brand new Lincoln uh, Mark 7 LSC. And I didn't want to take it on the salt, so I left it I left it uh, on the last piece of pavement and started to walk and hitch the ride into the salt flats. But anyway, that's a different story. I want to get off, waste time going on to that today. It's a story unto itself, my adventure there. But anyway, I really loved, uh, it was a great automotive experience. And anybody who is a hot rod farmer, if you have never been to Speed Week at the Bonneville Salt Flats, you really need to put that on your bucket list of things to do because it is just a great automotive venue. And you see some just really neat stuff that you look at an engine, you'll say, man, that looks like half of a 426 Hemi, like it's a Hemi cut in half. And the guy will go, yep, that's what it is. We cut the block in half. So anyway, I was very impressed by this, had a wonderful time. And then for uh, a number of years, I would tell my friend Bob Ida about it. And so what happened was that in typical Bob Ida fashion, he's going to be either, he's either full throttle, he's either on the throttle all the way or on the brakes all the way, nothing in between. So he decides to go out to the salt flats. 
And but I thought, you know, when I had suggested that to him, I meant for him to go out there and and visit and spectate and see what it's about, and maybe, you know, one day get involved with racing there or what have you, because he does race. But that's not Bob either. Like I said, it's either to the floor or the brakes, or both feet on the brake pedal. So without ever going there before, he decides to build a F-150 that he called Frightening, which is a which is a take on the name Lightning, the Lightning trucks, Frightening, and race on the salt flats. And he did do that, and in typical fashion, he was very successful. On his first time there, he got into the 200-mile-an-hour club. And he had a great time, and he loved it, and he got hooked on salt flat racing. The only problem being is that it's almost 3,000 miles from New Jersey, so that's not something that the guys from the West Coast that could go there you know, in less than a day's drive. But what happened was that he was out there, and he had a successful successful event, and uh, his tow vehicle, which was an F-350 uh, power stroke, uh, he would use that to go back and forth to the hotel onto where the onto the salt flats where he was racing, and that year in at in Utah it was very wet, so his tow vehicle really got covered with the wet salt, and before he left to come back to New Jersey, he went and he, you know, power washed the vehicle, the outside, inside the fender wells the best he could, and he hooked up the trailer and started to head east. Well, on I-80, if anybody is familiar with, there's a you know, big long grade. When you're going west into Salt Lake City, you're going downhill, and obviously when you're going east, you're going uphill. So he's going pulling that hill with the race car trailer and the power stroke, and everything is starting to get real hot. The truck is starting to sound funny, act funny. Transmission is overheating. Uh, engine is getting real hot. He pulls over to the side of the road. Pops the hood, lets everything cool off. Can't understand what's going on, and he lets it cool off, and then he starts back on his way. And the same thing, the same thing happens again. And the same thing happens again. It's starting to get real hot, and he finally nursed the the truck up that long grade on I eighty, and they got off the next exit that they possibly could, and they start to look, try to figure out what's going on. So. They crawled on at after a while they decided to crawl underneath the truck and to see what's what's going on there and then just because they didn't know what else to do, couldn't imagine why everything was getting hot. The transmission was overheating and the engine was overheating and the oil was overheating, everything was overheating. And lo and behold, when he crawled underneath there, him and the other guys crawled underneath there, they found that even though they had cleaned the top of the engine and cleaned the body and in the fender wells that the whole area by the exhaust, by the oil pan, where the transmission goes to the bell housing was packed solid with the wet salt from the salt flats from Bonneville. And that was what was causing everything to get hot. So what he ended up doing was uh, finding his way to a, uh, a truck wash and they spent a lot of time trying to get as much of salt as they could out from underneath there so there could be some airflow across the oil pan, across the exhaust system, and also across the transmission. And they were able to uh, to get home. But at that particular point, the damage was already done. 
the truck never sounded the same. The engine didn't sound happy anymore, and neither did the transmission feel happy. And in essence, uh, he ended up ruining that truck, sadly. It was a beautiful truck. He ended up ruining, ruining that truck, and uh, he, he traded it in and told the dealership that, you know, that the motor sounds funny, it got, hooked, it got cooked, and the trans sounds funny. And he took a big hit on it. The dealer probably put it put it on a lot and said cream puff, right? But that's hey, that's in his conscience. But Bobby did the right thing. And he ended up buying a uh, a new, uh, I think, F four fifty right after that. But anyway, why am I telling you that story? Is because his perspective of cleaning that truck. I mean, he certainly was cognizant that the salt was splashing up all over. And he did the best he could uh, with a cursory examination of the vehicle to get the salt out before he headed home. But his perspective was wrong. He felt that the salt was only where he saw it and everything else was fine. And then once he got to that big hill, it was discovered that that was not the case. Well, the reason why I'm bringing up this story is because the same thing is happening with our subject matter of this podcast this week. That if you were if you were combining crop, and you know, be it corn or be it soybeans, whatever. But I would say probably specifically corn, due to the header design. But either one, and it was very wet and very muddy and uh, possibly some down corn or near down corn and you're running the head real low to try to pick it up and you're slogging through this mud is that your perspective of how you service and clean that combine before you put it to bed for the winter and what you need to check has to be modified than if you are harvesting in normal and or dry conditions and just like Bob ended up ruining that truck from that short distance and to tell you the truth <clears throat> I think it's only about 75 or 80 miles to that hill from this uh, from the Bonneville Salt Flats so it's less than 100 miles and if you end up so he ended up really you know hurting that that engine and that transmission from that heating uh, in that short, relatively short distance. And the same thing could very well happen to you if you were harvesting in very damp or wet conditions. And also, I'd like to add, in snowy and icy conditions. Because the snowpack will carry with it debris, mud, stone, rocks, whatever, God willing, God forbid, a piece of metal or something into that combine that normally under dry conditions would not go there. So that is what we're going to discuss. And because there are so many different brands of combines out there, and though they do share uh, a lot of common parts, their designs will be application-specific. So what I want you to think about, or what the hope of this podcast is, to have you think in the proper perspective. And whenever you get done with a piece of equipment, be it a combine, be it a planter, be it a, a, a windrower, what have you, uh, as an aside to this, you have to think of the conditions that that piece of equipment or that implement was operated in prior to you getting done with its service for that, either for that year or just for that 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 
one application into the field. And then you need to modify your thought process of what you would normally do to it in between its next service due to those conditions. Now, if you are harvesting in very wet conditions, what you're going to find, and we're going to be talking about combine, is that you're going to find that you're going to be picking up a lot of dirt and you're going to moving it through the machine. Now, also keep in mind that mud can build up in the bottom of the elevator and that is going to create excessive wear on the paddles and it's also depending upon your soil but any type of mud is going to stick to parts in the combine that normally under dry conditions would not have any dirt sticking to it would just be dust it could also fill up the rasp or the concave bars in the initial separation and <clears throat> and create some grain loss there but we're already done with harvest so we're not going to worry about that now but with drier conditions, you have to worry about a lot of dust and dirt. But with wet conditions, you have to worry about mud, stones, and debris being brought through there. And you're also going to need to pay particular attention, which we'll discuss towards the end of the podcast, to the gearboxes, to the engine, oil, to the coolant, and the hydraulic fluid. Because when the combine is slugging through mud... To try to to harvest under wet conditions, all of those areas are going to be stressed. Now, what you need to do is basically, in essence, and that's why I told you the story about Bob Ida in the beginning. Is that you know he did, and and I mean I don't think that you know now that I know what what happened to him, I would probably I would do a much better inspection, but I would not have done anything much better than he did if I were in his shoes. So I'm not critiquing him because I would have fallen prey to the same thing. Is that you will need to be able to say to you, you knew you will need to say to yourself, hey, where do I need to look in this machine for? mud, stones, debris that I would normally not look. And the thing basically is, is to just to follow the path from the header all the way to the back of the machine. And depending upon the design of the machine, you may have to crawl inside, you may have to remove panels, you may have to do a number of different things based upon the particular brand and model that you have. But what I want you to say to yourself is, just like Bob stuck his head underneath the wheel well, stuck his head a little bit underneath the fender as best as he could, looked from the top of the motor, none of that could he see that the salt was all blocked up underneath. So the same thing is going to happen with you with the wet conditions. You're going to need to be able to say, hey, maybe I need to take this side panel off. Maybe I need to remove this, uh, whatever it may be. I'm being very vague because of the different machines and the different ways that they're put together even though they accomplish the same thing whereas your normal protocol for washing would not be uh, be good anymore because you need to find out what's happening now keep in mind is that you're going to need to have to follow that pathway that 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 grain would take from let's say harvesting the corn stalk and cutting the corn stalk and and shucking it and what have you all the way to the back because you may find don't fall into the false sense of security that that you stick your head in there and look and go oh well there's no mud here there's no stones here there's nothing really too bad over here and then uh and not go to the next step down the 
conveyor, the conveyor meaning the pathway that the grain goes, because you may get to a certain section in that machine, and for whatever reason, the way it's designed, that's where it held the mud and debris. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that when you are harvesting in wet conditions like that, and wet being, I'm going to repeat, whether it's snow or whether it's mud, when you're wet rain, uh, if you're harvesting in wet conditions, by the time that you put the combine back in the shop and you're done with the harvest for that season, you may not find any mud or anything in there because it kind of blew itself out. So the other aspect of it is that you need to really look at everything very carefully and inspect the chains, the gears, every aspect of that machine for excessive wear because the abrasiveness of the dirt going through the machine is going to wear all of those parts at an exponential rate. And you may say to yourself, okay, I only service this, I put new chains on and new gears, whatever, uh, so many hours ago. But keep in mind that even though it's clean right now, that the damage could have been done to those chains, those, 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 those gears, uh, those concaves, what have you. I'm just naming different things. Because like I said, this is more about a mindset, a thought process, and for you to really, really study this. <clears throat> you know, pay attention. You're going to have to, the first thing that, that I would suggest that you do is with a helper, run the machine. Run the machine. You could run it with the header and then without it, what have you. Run the machine. And then what you need to do is you need to listen. You need to feel and you need to smell. Does anything sound different? Does anything feel different? Are you, are, are do you, and you know, this gets to back, back to be for you knowing the machine. Does it have a harmonic in it that you don't think it had before? You know, as stuff starts to wear, it will talk to you. It'll tell you. It doesn't just wear, it usually talks to you. Uh, in almost every instance, a mechanical thing will talk to you before it fails. So let's say that you had a lot of chain slack because the chain uh, the chain was stressed from, from working through the muddy conditions and you really stretched the chain and now you have a lot of chain slack and it jumped the tooth on the gear. Now, that harmonic of that is gonna, is gonna affect the bearing that runs that that chain, that, that gear runs on. So what you will have to do is you will have to pay attention. And in my Christmas podcast, what the Christmas gift guide, I also talk about a tool from Steelman uh, Industries, a Steelman company. I was, I think it's Steelman, and I call it Steelman. I said the same thing in that podcast. You think I'd get it right by now? But anyway, uh, they make a tool. It's very inexpensive. It's about hundred ten dollars. It's an electronic ears, like like an electronic stethoscope. And that's a great tool to have in the farm shop for anything, to listen to bearings, to listen to hydraulic motors, pumps, what have you. And what you could do is, with that tool, you could go around, run the combine, and put the, put the uh, I'm calling it electronic uh, headphones, electronic uh, sensing device near different parts and listen to it. Hey, does it sound different on the left side? Does it sound different on the right side? So that is 
what you'll need to do you'll need to and you'll pay attention to the way it feels pay attention to the way it sounds you could use an infrared gun and you could start to shoot different areas and see what the temperature is so arguably if a chain is running let's say 60 degrees on one side and it's running 75 or 80 degrees on the other side well that's a telltale sign with no load on it that something is going on so you would want to look at that you'd want to inspect the chain look at the look at the uh the slack adjustment you know is this chain more stretched than it normally would be for the amount of hours that you harvested you know does something seem to be shuddering does something not seem to uh to uh, be running as smoothly as it as it as it as it did before and you need to pay particular attention to the to the to the wear points that have that experience repeated friction and that's like the roller chains on a corn head or any chain and you know with any chain that's noticeably loose and stretched or it's becoming sloppy you know the likelihood of that chain failing and or that part failing shortly thereafter is very good now the other thing is that you know keep in mind that if you have a particularly wet harvest or your corn stalks are real tough that you're going to have some potential plugging issues and you're also putting putting extra strain on the rollers so even though those areas may not be plugged right now all right the thing basically is is that they need further inspection because you i guess in a nutshell what i could what i would say to you is that i'm going to throw an arbitrary number at you is that under the type of conditions that a lot of people had down south and with the snow out west but specifically more down south because it's it's wet and muddy versus just the snow carrying maybe some debris in it is that you will probably experience wear in all of those components at an exponential rate so what would normally would take let's say 300 hours to wear you may have the same amount of wear in a hundred hours or 50 hours or 75 hours so there is no rocket science here uh it's the idea of you closely examining everything listening looking cleaning paying attention to different adjustments and you know this is where really getting to know your machine and say you know hey i really don't have to adjust this after so many hours or so many acres and now you know now this really needs is out of adjustment or this part kind of looks more beat up than i than, than it should be for that amount of use that i have on it and that's going to be a sign for you to look at and say hey let's see what's going on here let's look at this gear let's look at this chain let's look at these rollers let's look at these concaves uh whatever the area of the combine must be but you know as i said a few seconds before a few minutes before is that you know, your ears are a great great tool and your machinery machinery will always tell you something and it will talk to you as i said but you know you don't just write something off oh it sounds funny today i mean like i said with bob ida after he cooked that motor coming up that hill from salt lake city it ran fine it ran smoothly but it just didn't sound right it sounded as a, a when a when a machine gets cooked and in, in the vernacular of the industry is cooked meaning that you overheated it whether it be an engine or whether it be a bearing or whether it be a hydraulic motor or what have you when it gets cooked it it changes its voice print it changes its sound and it has a very unique sound to it that 
that's very hard to describe, but experience ear will say, hey man, this thing's got this thing was cooked. It just sounds funny. The valve train sounds funny and what have you. And the same thing would happen with your with your combine. Do not take any different sounds, harmonics, harmonics being a vibration, noises, feels, or anything for for granted and say, oh, we're just making noise today. Oh, it's just this. That that is a warning sign of something that uh, that saw excessive stress on it during the wet harvest. You would also pay attention to the hydraulics because the hydraulics were working very hard. Uh, it's very possible that the fluid that the fluid got overheated or that even if it didn't get overheated, you know, when you as an aside to this, when you have a, a, a lubricant, be it an engine oil or hydraulic fluid, if you were to look at a chart for its life at a certain temperature, let's say arguably at 100 degrees, that this fluid would last 200 hours. At 120 degrees, this fluid may only last 100 hours. At 130 degrees, this fluid may only last 50 hours. And the thing is that it's not a linear curve. So it doesn't. So the the amount, the useful life does not go down in linear fashion with its with its with its uh, temperature. So as everything starts to run hot, now you have a fluid that because it's hot, it started to cavitate. It started its viscosity started to break down. Its chemical composition started to break down, and that would create excessive wear in all of the parts that it worked with. And like a hydraulic fluid, in most instances, is what we would call a working fluid. It actually does something, but it's a working fluid, and in many applications, it's also a lubricant. So it's a working and a working fluid and a lubricant. So you know, keep keep that in mind. You know, and the other thing uh, that I wanted to tell you is that even if you don't have any wear like that, that that you could spot, but give everything inside the combine a close inspection because, you know, it's a very good possibility that you were running that head low. You were picking up some stones, some rocks, some debris, and well, hopefully not rocks, right, more stones. But... Uh, picking up things and putting it through there putting it through that machine and it is a uh something where you know a, a good set of eyes you'll go if you ever want to know a guy who's a machinist a guy who's a machinist the guy is a lathe operator a mill operator a true machinist an engine machinist he'll touch everything with his hands so he won't just look at it; he'll touch it. So if you're talking to a true machinist and whatever he uh, he he's machining a part, he'll look at it. But when he gets done, he'll run his fingers around it; he'll move his hands around it. And you need to do this with the combine. You need to be able to crawl in there. You need to go around. You need me. You know, take your fingers, feel the gears, feel the chains, look at the rollers. You know, look at the different parts through the combine. Feel it. Uh, feel it. Move your hand around. Does it have a bump over here? Does it have a notch over here? Uh, lots of. I mean, you could have on a piece of machinery like that. You could have something that your eye does not pick up because of its location or the imperfection is too small, like a little burr, and but the machine will know it. So it's a matter of I like to touch stuff. I like to put my hands on it, to be, uh, and to be very tactile. Move, feel the chain. Move your hands around the gear. Move your hands around the combine. Feel everything. You know, <clears throat> crawl into the into the feeder house area and what have you. 
And like I said, I'm not telling you here anything that you don't already do. And the purpose of this podcast is simply for you to say to you that what you need to do is to take your after-harvest service to a higher level when you were harvesting in, in very adverse and wet and muddy conditions. So what was good for you before is not going to be good for you this year in many parts of the country. You know, and keep in mind that something that is caught early can now, not only can you fix it long before next year's harvest, but usually when you catch something early, it is the least expensive to repair. Not always, but usually. And as I always like to say, you know, with the Farm Machinery Digest, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. And it's... uh, and you could have a great crop, you could have a great harvest, you could have, uh, you know, crop prices could go, you know, could, could, could go, it could become a, you know, a bull market and what have you, and that's great, but if you're losing it on the other end, then it's useless. So I want you to have, and this is my mantra almost every week, I want you to have a great harvest, I want you to have great prices, and I want you to have minimum operating expense with your equipment. And when you put those three together, you're going to have some profitable, profitable operation. So basically, let's take the our inspection, our listening, our cleaning, our studying, our feeling to a higher level. Now, let's move our direction to the rest of the machine. And basically, the engine, uh, the drive system, you know, hydraulic motors, hydraulic pumps, and uh, what have you. As far as the engine is concerned, let's start there. After every harvest, but specific, but specifically a very challenging harvest, is that you'll follow your no- normal protocols, but hopefully you change the coolant prior to the harvest, whether it was last year or you checked the coolant uh, to see if it needs any additive, because what basically happens is that when an engine is working hard, the coolant boils in the cylinder head. And when it boils in the cylinder head, uh, and it's supposed to do that, that's how it that's how it removes the heat from the cylinder head. As it boils in the cylinder head around the exhaust valve and the combustion chamber, what it will do over time, it will dissipate and use up the additive package that makes that antifreeze, or that, that glycol or proper coolant for that engine. So if you are really working this machine very hard under the wet conditions, you are going to exponentially wear that coolant out. So I don't want you just to do a test strip test to looking for to see if it needs any supplemental coolant additives. I want you to spend the $25 or $30 and pull a coolant sample and send it to a lab. The lab will give you a full report. It's like an oil analysis, or like a soil test, and they will tell you the condition of the coolant and also if there's anything funny happening inside that engine. Because if that coolant is worn and starts to wear you during harvest and you're really loading that engine, is that you're going to start to experience cylinder line of cavitation erosion, which is deadly. And you want to be able to catch that as early as possible. 
and the way that the lab would tell you if they saw that is that they would they would it would be a high level in parts per million of uh, of of elemental metals in there. So that's basically what they would how they would identify that. So it's important for you to pull a coolant sample and send it to the lab. You don't even need the test strips then because that's going to be tell you way beyond the test strips. I want you to pull an oil sample from the engine because that oil is going to have some hours on it and some work on it. And you could say, well, I'm just going to change it all. I change it every season. That's fine. Pull it to pull the sample and send it to the lab prior to you changing that oil. And the reason why I'm saying is that that oil will have a lot of use on it, and I'm not concerned with the condition of the oil because you're going to change it and the filter, but what I'm concerned is is what's floating around in that oil because you were working that engine very hard. So you want to pull it, send it out to the lab, and then you could change it right after you pull the sample. That's fine because changing is preventing the maintenance, but the pulling the oil sample is is going to be a diagnostic test to see if anything is funny is going on inside and then you would do the same thing with the hydraulic system as many hydraulic systems as that particular unit has that you would want to check that hydraulic oil and you would want to pull a sample on that and then again send it to the lab and let them make sure that there's not no nothing strange in that hydraulic oil and also at that particular point you will be able to qualify whether that hydraulic oil is still good and that the additive package is, is still there or it's spent and needs to be changed so those tests cost about $30 so you'll probably have about 90 to 120 dollars in tests between the oil the engine coolant and the hydraulic fluid to uh, to have a good picture, an excellent picture of what's going on in that machine and how it weathered that that rough harvest season. So that is your areas. Now the other thing I want you to look, which you know, which is common sense, but I mean I'm going to say it anyway. But it's, I mean I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, pay particular attention also to the undercarriage of the machine. That you get a lot of mud up in there. Is there mud in the back of the rims? You know, when when you do a good washing of this unit, like I say, you know, this this is basically a search and discovery mission. It's no different than you know looking for a lost child in the woods. God forbid. It's search and discovery. You're following the crop through the machine because the header is going to be able to is going to pick up the dirt and you're following it through the machine you're looking for damage you're listening you're feeling you're touching you're taking temperature readings you're looking at the you're looking at the at the at the fluids in the unit uh, you're testing them in a laboratory to see if there's any foreign materials in them and the condition of them and then you're getting underneath the machine and you're obviously cleaning the grease, the, uh, the the mud out from areas that normally would not be muddy. And so, and that's in essence, and that's why, you know, once again, I told you a story about Bob Ida because he did a superficial examination of, the, of his truck. He realized that it would have caked salt. He didn't realize to what extent that it had caked salt and or that it would build up that much salt and fill up the whole bell housing and the exhaust system or I mean the exterior of the exhaust system what have you and end up cooking the engine and the transmission and I don't want that to happen to you 
I don't want you to go into next year's harvest and then you're 50 hours or 100 hours into that harvest and something something starts to happen to that machine and then at that particular point when you start to look to determine what is going on with that that you go and you uh, find that oh my god this whole thing is filled with mud or what have you I didn't realize that there's a stones up in here or what have you I'm just like I say making up things as they go along and you know and the other thing basically is that if your protocol is to not grease the machine uh, some people like to grease it at the beginning of the harvest obviously through the harvest and then grease it again at the end of the season which I think is the best way uh, if you're and this way it's ready to go in the spring but more importantly by greasing that unit after harvest you are you accomplish a number of things number one you get to look at all the areas that are being greased you're putting eyeballs on it right so that you could see hey does this look funny does this look worn is there a problem here but also you're using that grease to push any moisture or mud or what have you and hopefully not mud but moisture out of that grease cup and that joint wherever it may be so this way you it's if it was not your protocol to grease it uh at the end of the season before you put it away it is always the best protocol even during a dry year because you're pushing all the dirt out you're pushing everything out and you're filling that cavity where that grease cup is and that joint whatever that joint may be that pivot or what have it is that you're filling it up with grease to keep moisture out during the off season and to protect that part but also like I say to push any foreign material out and you know that is very very important for you, for you to do that and to and it gives you the opportunity to study and you know tactile feel stuff feel a cup feel around you know, grab grab something does it move you know put your hands on it don't just go through it blindly like a guy uh, working assembly line and putting the part on and not knowing what it does and then you know as an aside to this also which has nothing to do with a uh, a wet harvest is that i know most people you know wash the machine wash the combine before they put it away and that's great and that's what you should do but you know keep in mind that there is a flip there is another side to reason why you want to wash all your farm equipment is that uh, dirt and dust dirt and dust and mud and whatever hold moisture so that's going to make it obviously more prone to rust but people don't realize it that let's say you have a uh, a tie rod end and it's all dusty and dirty that over time believe it or not this and you know some 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 of you may be challenging this and say oh, I don't know what I'm talking about but over time even when that vehicle or that machine is sitting is that just due to natural you know air currents and temperature inversions and and gravity that dirt and that dust even in a dry year starts to work into everything and even when the unit is sitting it it, it starts to work into everything and then over time creates an excessive amount of wear so not only is a clean machine uh, a clean machine Im imperative uh, for appearance right I mean hey nothing looks better than a nice shiny machine but the fact of the matter is it's it's very important as far as its mechanical health over time is concerned and you know the thing is that you you want this equipment to last as long as possible and even if it's a lease lease unit you're only keeping it three or four years you want to have those three or four years to be as trouble free as possible because you want to be able to use it like i said i always look at farm equipment like emergency equipment it needs to work when it needs to work 
and uh, like an ambulance or a fire truck. So it's very important for you to do that. And also, you know, even it's a, even if it's a lease machine, I know to me as a Christian that I look at stuff and I take care of it as if it were my own, because I want to be able to give it back and say, hey, I was, you know, was if the next person wants to do something bad with it, that's on their conscience, not mine. I want to respect, you know, the blessing of a piece of equipment that the good Lord gave me, whether it's through a lease or whether it's through a purchase. So basically, if we come full circle here, what it really boils down to one word, your perspective of what you're going to do with that unit needs to change after you went through a wet and muddy harvest season. So the areas that you studied just gave it a cursory look before now needs to be looked at to much more detail. And if you do that, it'll take a little bit of time, but you'll be good to go for the next harvest season. Alrighty, now that we now we finished that up and I drilled that into your head, I want you to get out there and start to study that combine. And uh, I want to get into our special delivery segment. And I'm proud to say that the special delivery is brought to you by Firestone Ag. That is a company that was founded by Harvey Firestone. He was a fourth generation farmer from Columbiana, Ohio, which is right outside of Youngstown. And Harvey dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors. And his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today and lives on with their 23 degree tread bar and AD2 technology. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm. Trust it only to Firestone. And, you know, as I always say, that is so true because no matter what we do on the farm above the tire, the tire is actually what is touching that ground. And it's so important today, you know, specifically when we had wet wet harvest season, I know there's going to be a lot of field work and there's going to be a lot of compaction in those fields. And uh, at the time, if you had invested, you know, and you know, hey, it's like, you're buying insurance after the house burns down, right? But uh, if you had invested in a uh, AD2 tire or a track system or something that you would have on a year like this, it would really, really pay for itself. And you know, when I look at advanced tire technology, like the AD2 technology as an insurance policy, I mean, it definitely pays dividends in normal or good years or dry years, but it really, really pays dividends when you're riding on a wet field. And so many of you guys had that this year that uh, I know you must have just been cringing going into that field to get that crop out of here because you had no choice and just knowing, you know, how you're compacting that soil. So uh, hopefully, God willing, you'll be able to correct that and not have too much of a uh, of a yield loss next year with next year's crop. But anyway, uh, I'm going to read you Joe's letter from South Carolina. It's very, very short. It says, uh, do you feel that it is okay to mix greases, grease brands and types? I usually buy what is on sale. Thanks, Joe from South Carolina. Alrighty, Joe. Well, I was never known to be politically correct. So I'm going to say this to you respectfully and tough love you. Is that I don't, I don't mind buying stuff on sale if it's a quality product but if you're only going to be a price point shopper then i think that you're going to end up losing in your farm shop and every aspects of your farm or ranch operation because you're going to be chasing the lowest cost item but to answer your question succinctly uh 
the API, which is the American Petroleum Institute, has certain standards for greases and for engine oils. But that that is the standard that it must meet. And then certain manufacturers have standards for their greases, their engine oils, and also their hydraulic fluids. Because as an aside, there is no real API standard as far as agricultural equipment is concerned for hydraulic fluids. And that's why I always say that you should use the manufacturer's hydraulic fluid because it has all of the additives in it that that they want but the api specifications only tell part of the story and just like think of it as if you were looking at a seed catalog and it tells you you know how many days to this level how many heat units it needs to get to this point uh it gives you the characteristics of the plant and it gives you some you know very key things about that plant but that doesn't tell you everything. It doesn't tell you how it's going to yield. It doesn't tell you its its uh, drought tolerance, its disease tolerance, what have you. They could say, okay, we have this coating on it. We have this genetics on it. But it doesn't really tell you how it's going to perform. So the API standard, American Petroleum Institute standard, is basically like the information in the seed catalog. It's saying that this grease or this oil meets this minimum standard. And then what that grease has in it after that is going to be paramount to its performance its performance meaning how it protects or works with that part that you're greasing and its longevity why i do not like to mix different greases to answer that part of your question is that you do not know the true chemical composition of each grease so if you use brand a this time and then the next time you go to town and you buy brand B and they both meet that API standard, there is going to be a good percentage of that grease that is going to be compatible. But there is also a very strong possibility that there is a percentage of that product that is not going to be fully compatible with the grease that is in that joint or wherever or that's residing in that machine right now. Uh, you know, what could the results be? Well, it could be antagonistic in some way uh, with the grease that is already there. It could separate the grease and the, it could separate the oils from the grease. It could have a, it could negate or like we would say in, with fertility in ground, tie up something. So, you know, the thing is, the thing is today, and I'm, I'm not copping out on this, is that, you know, technology is a double-sided sword that... You know, science and chemistry has advanced so much over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years that there are so many unique application-specific things in each product, and there's no way for us to know that. So if you use brand A this time and then use brand B the next time and mix them, let's say, in that uh, that universal joint or in that tie rod end or in that coupling or what have you, I cannot tell you if it's going to have an antagonistic uh, effect on it. I can't tell you if this is, because I don't know what the chemical composition is. I don't know, I'm not a chemist. I don't know what additives they use. So the thing is that my contention is that grease is so inexpensive. A cartridge of grease or a tub of grease or what have you is so inexpensive that I would buy a name brand product whatever you want to do whether it's the manufacturer's product john Deere, case ih whatever or a or just a name brand let's say like valvoline quaker state pens oil and then i would just stick with that i would stick with it 
And once you do that and stick with it, you're taking that completely out of the equation. And in the scheme of life, you know, what are you going to save uh, you know, over the course of the year? $3 or $5 on, on Greece? And then, then worrying about whether... You know, whether it has whether it doesn't have the full properties that you need or it's actually negating some of the properties and you know I feel the same way about engine oils and I feel the same way about you know engine coolants and all chemicals is that I don't like to mix them I like to stick with one brand because what they're saying is meets this standard is only a, is one aspect of that product's performance and its interaction in that machine and you know we have so many variables in agriculture and in ranching. We have the we have the weather to deal with. We have the fluctuations in the market conditions. You know, we have have, have so many different things that go that that are happening. There's no need for us to put other variables in to save a dollar. And and even if you're not even if you are saving a dollar. So Joe, my contention to you is that you know did you hurt something? Probably not, but. From this point moving on, I would stick with a name brand product. If it's a, uh, if you have one color machine, stick with their grease. Uh, if you're going to buy a uh, aftermarket grease, buy it from a name brand company, and then use that same grease in everything, and just move forward and use that same grease, and you will have to give that no more thought whatsoever. Alrighty, so a very simple answer to a simple question, and don't you know be penny wise and dollar foolish and like I say and, you know I respect the fact my father was that way my father would you know he was the, the, you know, the ultimate price shopper so uh, and sometimes he you know nothing happened and sometimes it did and like I said my idea is that in the scheme of life you know a dollar or two that you're going to save over the course of a six months or a year is, is moot and all you have to do is have one failure because of it even if it's a tie rod one tie rod fail on a tractor it's going to negate forgetting about the labor just buying the parts going to negate all your savings on grease so name brand stick with that brand stick with that chemical composition and you'll be good to go and give it no more thought well listen thank you so much for listening if always if you have any questions or comments please feel free to feel free to contact me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and next week's podcast is going to be I'm going to introduce a topic to you called degrees of freedom so it's degrees like temperature and of freedom so I want you to think about that for next week I'm going to bait you so what are degrees of freedom and how why should you exercise them in your farm operation so listen you have a blessed week and always know that you know that the hot rod farmer is not only praying for you uh the american farmer and rancher but i'm pulling for you i'm pulling for you and my beloved america you have a great day and i'll talk to you next week thanks for listening bye bye